0: Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for to, and more. Today, I'm having a guest with Jules Chalkley, Ogilvy's Chief Executive Creative Director. As his title suggests, Jules has an immense amount of experience working on top brands, such as Ikea, M&S, Land Rover, Boots, SipSmith, and Virgin Atlantic. Time of recording, it's lockdown two. And so it looks like you're back out of sea containers and into wherever you are.
1: I am at home in South London. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been weird That I think. I mean, it's, um, I, think, I think we've all learned something new about ourselves, haven't we? About how we work and how we, and how we operate. Well, I think learn- creatively, I think it's been really interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, we've all felt- I think it's, um, uh, mo- I, d- I don't know what your situation is, at home, uh, have you had to also be educating kids or any of that?
1: Uh, we've had, uh, well, in lockdown one, we had our young- our eldest had gone to university, so we had all three kids at home. And so it was like uh, running around the house trying to find space to work and um you know the fight for wi-fi and broadband was was intense mm. but um now they're sort of they're all back at, they're all still they're all back at school thankfully i think mean, that's you know i mean having kids at home i mean i'm lucky because there's service but god if you know you have to deal with that on your own and work it, i just you know, i can imagine
0: hard. i can imagine that's difficult i'm of i'm of of the young unmarried age at the moment so uh, thankfully, I dodged that one. I came. I, I think I came in the sweet spot between being right at the beginning of my career and not quite on the ladder, which must be really hard this year. And then, uh, you know, young children uh, having to manage both both things at once.
1: Um, yeah, I think the impact on the young is. I mean, obviously, everyone's been impacted by it. But I, you know, just if you look at the sort of the guys coming out of colleges and you know, or, or trying to get a job, their first job. You know, it's a really intense marketplace, you know what I mean? It's like, um, if anything, businesses are shrinking. Uh, and I just think that's, that's really tough. And, and I think it's not going to go away that quickly. I think there's a bit of a knock-on effect, right? You know, this year's cohort on top of next year's cohort on top of everything else can going to be difficult.
0: I see what you mean in the same way that, yeah, everyone's had to knock back their uh, plans for a year. That, like you say, there'll be an entire year that missed getting onto the career ladder. Yeah, so I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think so. And I think, I mean, I think it's interesting So I think, you know, if you look at people that are sort of doing it in universities, I think they're asking themselves, is it worth it? You know what I mean? Is it, is it, do I really need to spend all this money to do this for three years and then where will I be at the end of it?
0: Do you think that might be the end of a, um, you know, particularly noteworthy decade because obviously it was 2010, Cameron government, fees tripled to nine grand a year. And um, in, the, in that decade, that's when I started her- hearing sentiments to, to the effect of the one you said expressed, why am I paying all this money? It, you know, someone in The Guardian said, eventually universities will have customer service departments.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean what's the average debt of, a, of uh, someone coming out of universities? I don't know, it's got to be 40 grand, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, money?
0: so it'll be 27 tuition and the rest, won't it?
1: Yeah, so by the time you finished, you're coming out with some serious debt. Yeah. Before you've even got going. That's right, yeah. But uh, encumbered with, with um, you know
0: the the kind of debt that you couldn't pay off with a few years' salary for probably quite a few years. Yeah, you know? definitely. So it's interesting. And um, what what do you you know you you're the chief exec creative at Ogilvy. Um, what do you guys do to help people you know youngins get onto the ladder? I remember hearing some. I can't remember what it was called, but I remember hearing there was some kind of creative scheme for young creatives that you did.
1: Yeah, we've got this. Um it was uh, created about, uh, I'm going to say four years. It's about four or five years old. It's called The Pipe. The pipe. And it's called The Pipe after David Ogilvie is famous for smoking a pipe, but obviously it works for uh, bringing youngsters into, into the business. And over the years, it's grown into something really powerful. And I think what, what's, there's, there's a lot to it. Um, let's see if I can unpack it clearly. The industry, I think... It sort of goes back to the college system, doesn't it? Which is, unless you can afford to spend quite a lot of money on an education, a good college, and, and have the money to sort of live and hang around London, it's very hard for you to get into the industry. And I think the industry over the, over the, um, over the last decade has attracted the same sort of candidate. Do you know what I mean? I'm talking from a creative perspective. But it's attracted because of the sort, of, that, sort of, that sort of national structure that's in place. It's, it's, it's dictated terms of who we get to see. And the pipe was and is the antidote to that. It is a fully sort of democratic, really trying to get into the places in the country that don't, you know, we, we just, where people aren't thinking about what we do as a career and so it's not really sort of going through the colleges it's going sort of more through social media platform to to find those people who are sort of creatively minded in the broadest sense creatively minded but don't even realize that you need a portfolio or actually when it comes to what we do and, and it's not just advertising anymore it's you know everything now uh you can have an amazing career and and i think the pipe is amazing and and it's Every year it's oversubscribed and every year it brings in a cohort of people who are just very different and, and think very differently and have very different backgrounds. And, um, you know, we've had poets, sculptors, all sorts um, sort of join and, and they, they prove to be in, incredible talent. Um, but we would just otherwise, we, the pipe we, without the pipe, we would just never have that. And um, I think it's really important.
0: Yeah, so you're trying to um, attract. Uh, I joked with Steve Harrison uh, about trying to attract Dominic Cummings' weirdos and misfits um, that he put out a memo at the start of the year. And what, what I, I qualify that by uh, saying what we are presumably in the creative industries are endeavouring to look for is, like you said, people who are creatively minded, lateral thinkers. Not specifically. I've done a load of painting and I've made a lot or I've made a load of beats on my. Mac? Because it's not always going to be clear, as I think you were indicating, unless you're from a particular background, you're not going to have the opportunity to do all that stuff. You know, if you can't afford a MacBook Pro, but you might still have that spark of talent. And so is this, the pipe is trying to get through to people who might not be able to go to St. Martin's or,
1: you know. Exactly that, yeah. yeah. I mean, not, and, and by the way, those colleges are amazing. Yeah. And they, and they do incredible things and they, they, they always have really smart Creative thinkers leave at the end of it, but I think you know when you're talking our industry, which is sort of you know really you're talking mass media in some way or one in one way or other. You've got to be able to reach everyone, and you know when when you're when you're sort of stacked up with the same sort of talent, you're only going to get one one type of thing, and 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 what we need is you know diversity you know, in, inclusion in our creative departments and, and across the business, to be, to be frank, uh, and diversity of thought and opinion and background. Mm-hmm. Um, because really that's what creates an interesting creative culture.
0: And we don't want to um, put, maybe don't want to put too fine a point on anything. but It might be interesting to explore what you mean when you say, you know, we're attracting a very narrow set of people and I'm not asking you to call people out or anything like that, but you know what? What are we seeing there? What's the same thing that keeps coming
1: through? I think you see. I, I think you see a, a certain type of thinking, a certain type of uh, candidate. You know what I mean? I think um, it's not. It's not about region. I, I just. I just think it's. It's. They're coming from a, a position where they've had certain things given to them, and then they have a certain outlook on stuff. And um, really, you need, you need difference of opinion and you need different ways of looking at things to make things interesting, I think. But yeah. I think, you know, if you're paying 20, well, hang on, I mean, if you do a three-year course, you're 50 grand, you know, you've got to be able to afford 50 grand at some point.
0: Yeah.
1: And then the other thing is, you know, the, the problem with London is to work in the industry that we work in, You, I don't think you do have to do this, by the way, anymore, because I think what's the upside of working remotely is that we've all got used to being anywhere but i think the thing is that you know agencies are sort of central central in london and and you somehow got to have access to that and therefore you probably need to live in or around or know someone who does and i think that's hard i mean if you're trying to attract people from the from you know every corner of the country, that's quite that's quite a tall ask, but I think it's important.
0: Yeah, and uh, to, to, on the personality point, uh, what you're looking for in, is creative brilliance, and you know creativity doesn't necessarily correlate or have a relationship with um, other personality traits. So what I'm saying is, uh, at that age of 18, I would not have been able to. I wouldn't have been able to move down to London, and that's not because. It would have been impossible. I wouldn't have actually had the courage to do that. I would have been too anxious about what if I run
1: out of money? What if I'd become. Yeah, homeless. it's a big. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think it's a, I think it is a big deal. Um, I, think, I think the thing that the, the colleges have is that, you know, the colleges always have very good relationships with, with companies like us, and we, we, we do have good relationships with them. But I think in that sense, it sort of normalizes the journey a little bit that at some point you're going to be looking into getting into one of those a creative shop in London somewhere and you know this is all part of the process to get into it but where what we're interested in is finding the people that don't even think it's an it's an option yeah. and another and, and, and I think as an industry one of the things we need to need to do is really be getting into the schools when people are thinking about A level and talking about you know um, that as a career option because I just I don't think it I, I think it's something most people I know, I've almost sort of stumbled into. Yes, the, the amazing thing about the the pipe scheme this year is that at the end of it, it's a proper apprenticeship. At the end of it, you get a qualification, which is which is amazing.
0: That's great. So it's a proper yeah. accreditation that can be used yeah. elsewhere. It's not yeah. just like proprietary Ogilvy only credits. But yeah. um, it's, a, it's
1: it's a really nice thing. It's a good thing. It certainly
0: wouldn't have occurred to me ten years ago that advertising was a viable uh, solution. So there's you know uh, two things we didn't know um one is that uh, advertising is one of the rare places where you can be gainfully employed to be creative you know you can use photoshop and premiere and cubase and all this stuff and get paid a decent wage for it there aren't many industries where there's actually jobs for those kind of things didn't know that when i was 18 and the other thing i didn't know is that advertising is actually uh, a good a, a, an all right thing to aspire to because obviously when we were that age we were like advertising you know, sucking up to the man, selling stuff. I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to be Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm going to be, you know, and so they don't know that it's actually, uh, it can be cool and it is respectable, you know.
1: I think it, um, I mean, I think what we do is, I think where I started my career was in advertising. And whilst I still, we still operate in in that space. What we do is much broader than that now. Um, I mean, it's, it feels much more of a sort of communications, a creative communications business.
0: More than um, just a print radio and TV.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the media landscape you can operate in is, is unbelievable. And actually, I think it gets more exciting because you you, you move into the experience realm. And, you know, as as, as as brands sort of continue to build their relationships with their customers and consumers it's that relationship that I think is really interesting from a creative point of view that you can explore. And I think social media is an amazing platform to explore that, Uh, you know, there are so, I mean, it's just brilliant.
0: Yeah. And um, that's, uh, there's there's gonna be a lot to talk about that, that's on the future. And I thought what would be useful would be to do a U-turn or even a you know a fishhook because we were talking about how people are going to get into it now. Yeah. And obviously we want to go through as the chief ECD of Ogilvy. How did you get to where you are? Where did it start? When did the light switch on that this is what you were going to do?
1: Uh, I never. I'm not very academic. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't very good at school. Mm-hmm. I was quite good at, I was quite good at art. Um, but I didn't. Uh, I wasn't, you know, your your archetypal student. And um, I was doing. It, I was. Do, I sort of. For some reason, I managed to get into a place where I was doing A levels, and I was doing A level art, and I got a book together, and I and I and I thought I wanted to be. I thought I wanted to do something with creativity because I think that's just. It felt like the only real option, if I'm <laughs> if I'm honest. And then I got a place at the local art college on a on a foundation course, but I failed. Uh, horribly failed all my A levels, and um, I thought I can't go back. I can't go back and do school. So yeah. I, I just went to art college, and um, I did a foundation course, and it was—I think it was one of the best years of my life. It was so freeing and liberating, and you know, I would—I would encourage anyone to go and do one because I think you find out so much about things you didn't even know were things. Do you know what I mean? It was yes. like I learned so much about. A side of me that I never really knew about, and um, and I really loved the sort of multimedia nature of that uh, college, and I loved you know the printmaking and the uh, we were doing three D design and CAD design and fine art and um, sculpture and everything right mechanical design everything and where I thought I was going to head was into this um, I was very good at sort of 3d design not sculpture but sort of like a mechanical design yes uh, which i didn't even know about it wasn't even anything that i'd ever you know it was, it was like a year of enlightenment so i applied to all these universities but what i didn't realize is that having no a-levels or, or actually failing a-levels very badly was going to be a bit, bit of a hindrance and then someone said well actually what you might like is if you like operating in all these things and i couldn't really pick one i didn't really like graphics it was just too fussy they said, "Why don't you sort of go to?" Uh, there was a college called Hounslow. So, where they, where they do sort of design and they do advertising and it's kind of media and it's you know it's film and it's. So I thought well, that sounds quite good, and I got in. I got in there. I got offered a offered a, a, a space and I went, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the advertising side of stuff. I like the idea, like the concepts. I like the sort of mass 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 media sense of it, and I really liked the AV side of it and the ideas but it was for me it was always about the idea yeah never really was very good at the executional side side of stuff so I did that and then uh the more I did it the more I enjoyed it and and the better it got and um I did a I did a um and I think it's called an HND and when I and we did a we did a DNA D competition, did quite well in there. And I got a placement at Sarches and went there with a mate and we did spent two weeks writing Castlemaine main four X ads of all things. Posters, Yeah. And and just really loved it. But it was it was hard. I got it was hard to get into the industry. It was like really tough. And um I ended up uh getting a job, getting another partner, and then got into a place that was doing pepper army ads. And I thought that was brilliant. So I, I and then by that point, we were on placement, and we were on placement for like six months. And I thought this is brilliant. We're just meeting with some really interesting people. You were talking to directors, you were talking to musicians, you were talking to photographers, and I just thought, oh my god, this is fucking awesome. Uh, and then it sort of really, it just really clicked with me, and I just, I just took it from there really, and then realised that actually there's some really smart people. You could really learn stuff. And they were really inspiring people and funny people as well and I just thought what a brilliant career.
0: Well there's um, two things I want to pick up on there so one is uh, you did your placement at Saatchi's
1: and yeah I I mean I did I mean I I did placements everywhere it was just kind of like um, wherever they would give you a placement I did a placement Uh, I actually wanted to end up working in certain ages like Hal Henry mm -hmm. at the time I had a certain I had a certain book I think at the time, you used to have a certain portfolio, or you've got a Hal Henry portfolio, or you've got a Mother portfolio. It kind of match you to the agency. Yeah, you could sort of tailor your book to the place you wanted to work. Actually, oh, that's cool. Um,
0: with the the question with Sarchis was, um, I'm not asking you to reveal your age here, but uh, yeah, what year was that? Was that before or after the two brothers were were heaved out?
1: Well, this was mid this was mid '90s. Yeah, and so they left
0: in '95.
1: Yeah, it was probably around then. It was at Charlotte Street, so it's started Saatchi, Saatchi.
0: Oh yeah. And so the main thing was um because I this is of interest to me because I've been reading the book Chutzpah and Chutzpah, which is about their kind of you know formation and domination ultimately. Yeah. So was it during the time when that they were the top you know king of the world agency?
1: Well it was a time when they were doing all that sort of amazing silk cut yeah. posters and you know, it was like a real uh it was, a, it was a great agency at that point in time, yeah, um, I'm not saying it isn't now, by the way, any had um, but it was just it was of its moment I think. yeah, and i think I think agencies can be like that, can't they can they, they, there are periods when they just that uh.
0: who do you think uh is you know, uh, having their moment right now
1: uh I think uncommon, but definitely. Of the moment, aren't they?
0: Being I mean, cute, build a life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think you know they've got it down. Uh, I think, um, I think Nils has always had that ability. I think he's always had his finger on the pulse. I think they're a very smart shop, actually. I think they they do really great work, and I think they just sort of. It seems to me that they're enjoying it. I'm yeah. sure it's extremely. I'm sure it's extremely hard work, but they seem to always feel like they're smiling and the work smiles a bit. Do you know what I mean? Do
0: you think you're going to see them shooting up the, um, the the business board?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, if they don't win every agency of the year thing, I don't know what's been going on.
0: I think for me with the the those sort of, you know, recent startup indies, for me it's uh, Uncommon and Who, What, Why are the two I'm watching closely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love Who, What, Why. I think the, the, that that's a really interesting model. I think those guys are, they're all at the top of their game. I mean, you know, you've got three of the world's best creatives in one in one room there, which I think is really—it's uh, quite a heady cocktail, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, huge. Uh, so I think they're amazing. I think you know, I think um, NCA New Commercial Art.
0: Yes, that by that they're just going to be um, the, the, in terms of new business. They've been quite remarkable in their first yeah. five months, haven't they? So yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you got you got again, you have got a, a, a different but very very top of the game lineup in there. Um, so I think you know. Look, I wish them all luck. Yeah, I think it's, it's a a it's a tough thing to do, and and right now I think uh, it's it's a really interesting time to be doing it. Yes, um, and so uh,
0: back onto the uh, the point of so you're doing your placement at Saatchi's. The other thing I was interested in uh, from your formative story there was saying that you were all about the idea and you found execution quite difficult. Now that's something that I sh- I've struggled with. With younger people, sort of people under the age of twenty, saying to me, "Oh well, I've got great ideas, but I just can't do any of them." And it's it's it was my view that for me to get in, I had to get past only having the ideas and actually be able to execute them. So, but but you know, you can say that because you're the chief ECD. What <laughs> would you say to someone who came to you and said, "I can't do
1: stuff, but I've got great ideas"? So uh, I've got it. I'm going to qualify it because okay. um, for me personally. If you if you think about you know I never my work was always too scruffy for to be a graphic designer I couldn't I just that just wasn't me as a as a as putting something down on a piece of paper Uh, that that's just not me I'm I'm good at ideas I can I can I can tell people how I want something to look and feel and then I think what's great about what we do. Is that we then connect ourselves with people who can do it way better than we can do you know what i mean so whether that's a photographer or a director or a or a technologist or a musician or or whatever it is right and i think that's the joy of it but i think once we're in that process craft is everything and, I, and you can learn craft by the way i mean i spent nine years at Rainey kelly learning craft yeah and you know i i, I you know people like mark rolf were the masters of it and I think you can learn that, But you know, really what I think, you know, if you've got people coming into the industry, all oh, I want to see or hear, and I think that's what most people is just, what are your ideas? What, what, what? Because the, the creative shops are structured to help people make stuff. Yeah. But what you need at the heart of it is something that's game changing. Um, so I think that's, I'm jealous of ideas. I'm jealous of great ideas. And I think that's in a healthy way.
0: Yeah. Have you seen any um, great ideas uh, this year that you thought that's just, that's done it?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, womb stories, have you seen that? Um, I just go that's amazing, because I think it's sort of culturally challenging and I think it is, I mean it's not, uh, is it? Yes, that's a big idea, that. For the benefit Uh, of anyone listening
0: who might not have seen it, do you want to describe it?
1: yeah, it's a it's a really beautiful oh god, hang on. I'm not gonna do it justice.
0: Sorry, we can cut out the hesitation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a bringing to life really of the full emotional impact of really what I mean. Can I can we come back to it? I need to yeah need to work it out, but I'll come back to
0: it. Yeah, yeah, definitely collect your thoughts about that. Um, the uh, to, to, you know the thing we were uh going on to was you know how'd you get from a to b if this is b um one, one thing i was also interested in is i didn't know that the idea of um you know creative duos was a um paul burke said it was Burnback who came up with the idea put them yeah. in pairs and um one thing that's always interested me i'm not i've spoken to a few cds or ecds uh one thing i've uh, been interested in and wanted to ask is, if you come up as a pair and one of them gets offered CD, what happens to the duo?
1: Oh, I mean, uh, creative partnerships are, 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 a, are a profound thing. And um, I, I don't really like the industry's reliance on teams. I think it, it sort of, uh, it, it works brilliantly. If it works, brilliant then, but if it doesn't, you know, I still think we need to allow individuals room to express themselves. And actually, you know, modern creative shops should have a structure in place where everyone can input very freely into this stuff. But there is a sort of a, there is something, if you have a good team, uh, two people can do the work of many. I think that when they're right, they're really right. If they're wrong, they're really destructive things. Right. But if you have an amazing team, you know, you go into a, uh, a partnership with someone, it's quite a close, I mean, it, it was physically very close because you you'd end up sitting in the offices for long days, you know, and weekends and, you know, you'd have to sort of, it became quite, um, I mean, I had a partner for 10 or well, 12 years called Nick, Nick Simons. He's just the nicest, cre- most creative guy. And I don't think we ever had a row. But at some point, you've got to make a decision on where you go. And that's where I think it becomes hard because it sort of feels like you're sort of betraying or, but it depends on what you want. I mean, some teams are just a brilliant creative team and don't, and, and by the way, that, that's an amazing thing. You know, I think some people rush to be creative directors, um, but yeah, that's, it's tough that. And I think it's hard because, you know, having two creative directors in a team becomes expensive for an agency to carry and, you know, you've got to make a decision and it's, it's if they're both good, then you're going to want to keep both in the business
0: yeah well that's that does happen doesn't it? You do get the teams both taken up to c d level at the same time and yeah. um i've been you know I've always been impressed with how um uh I, anna and hermetti uh, mother oh uh, yeah you know i that I can't imagine how you make all that work because they often say don't live and work together but live work and they're creative partners and you know
1: yeah i mean I know quite a few creative teams that are actually sort of partners outside of work um I don't know. I mean, I think there is a there is a closeness in a, creative, in, a in a in a good creative team. There is a kind of a closeness. Um, uh, yeah, they're they're funny things. Yeah, they're funny things.
0: Well, um, let's talk music. Yes. So, because I know that there was some excitement around that being, you know, the subject of our, you know, of our podcast, and I have sometimes wild away an entire. Uh, Session with someone forgetting to even mention music, but I know (laughs) that for you there was um, a specific you know era and uh, just something came immediately when we said on our little prep call what about music and just the nineties came flooding out. (laughs) So you've sent us this playlist. We'll share it on the screen uh, in the edit. So what is all this? Is this your
1: top tracks? The Fuji. What's all this nonsense? (laughs) Uh, I. For me, the 90s were a very creative, uh, formative period. And I think, um, you know, music played a a big part of that. And um, I think that's what I like about our industry, actually, is that you get to work with musicians and you get to play with music. And I think that's one of the joys of uh, what we do. Well, certainly a part of it. but the nineties were amazing. I mean, I just loved the nineties. It was like a coming, coming of age decade for me. Mm. And um, funnily enough, when when I went to art college, the first bloke I sat next to at art college is a, is, is a mate for life, a guy called Adam Powers. And um, he was very into his music. I was into my music. And then when we sort of went at different paths, after, after college, we, we ended up renting a house together. Um, and he was a, he's a, an amazing illustrator and designer and he 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 was working for this music uh guy he was um he was a music promoter and uh we, we would just get tickets to stuff and it just so happened that the things that he was getting tickets to i was really interested in so uh, people like the Verve, i think theres i mean the Verve still is one of the defining bands for me i think um i think they're sort of underestimated actually but uh, massive for me i mean i prefer them to People like oasis at the time and yeah you know, do you think that's, that's why they
0: get sort of underestimated because they they kind of come third to the oasis and blur tribe yeah in i think
1: yeah and suede were in there weren't you but yeah i think so i think they were they were slightly different weren't they they just felt more genuine to me actually those.
0: yeah um yeah i do know that when uh they when they come on and when we saw, I told you last time, we saw Ashcroft's Point in the Stones two years ago. Uh, there's a slightly more grown-up emotional tone of voice with the verve than there mm. ever was with Oasis. Yeah. And Blur, I don't know, I feel, I like Blur, but when I hear them, I do get the sense of someone trying very hard to do social commentary.
1: Yeah, and, I think, Yeah, um, yeah I, I entirely agree with that. And I think actually is it the musicology or or is that right or the right word but the verb is is their tracks are very sophisticated in the way they're put together yes it's not just a guitar and a drum they're sort of quite complex uh uh, tracks yeah um and i just like the swagger i mean it was just no nonsense wasn't it in that sort of whereas i think oasis became this sort of overblown thing and blur just sparred with it a bit
0: yes yeah oasis the 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 narrative is always put over as, you know, uh, we were no one, we were chances, uh, and then we, you know, made some great songs, and then oh, it just went absolutely, it just went fucking wild. And uh, then it kind of just tapers out after that. Uh, What I'm referring to is I've seen, you know, a number of Oasis documentaries, you know, because from when I was in a band, you watch them trying to suck out knowledge, and you realize there really wasn't much. It's just, oh, yeah, we had some good tracks, and then it just went mad. And that's the only insight you can get from it, that they went really big.
1: I mean, I went and saw the Verve at um, Brixham Academy with my, with my now wife, uh, and we were sort of quite early on in a, in a you know, and it was just, um, it was unbelievable. Um, and it was sort of, I think Richard Ashcroft wasn't wearing any shoes, he was on a carpet. And it's just things like that just really stick out to me. It's, yeah. Hella
0: Unbelievable. And um, what else? So you said you know you were being spoon fed tickets to enviable gigs. What else did you get to?
1: Oh my God, we went to see Dela Soul. Yeah. At, um, I think it was called the Town and Country, um, but that was again. I mean, it was just an amazing and and the Fuji the Fugees. Who I was at the time, I was just like, oh my God. I remember saying to my mate Adam, he said, "Well, you've got to listen to this band." He said, "That's funny. they they're on." They're on in Brixton in a, in a couple of months. He was doing all the ticket. he was doing all the flyers for them. It's mm. just like, fucking brilliant, we'll get to that. Yeah. So we got down there, but he, but he had all these access, all area passes. It was just like running around like um, Muppets. It was brilliant. I think there's a
0: through line there as well with um, the Verve and the Fugees, and not an obvious one, but I definitely think the Fugees seemed like the first time you got, what's the word, sophisticated rap, artistically intelligent rap music. Um, somewhat a rap aficionado a proper rap aficionado would probably correct me and, and you know slap me about for saying that but <laughs> you know what i mean certainly for the mainstream at that time you know uh, what we knew of rap was kind of tupac chakur. yeah and you know biggie smalls um but yeah Fuji's seemed like this is the gold standard you know
1: i mean you, i mean you know you got Lauren hill yes who is an amazing Artist in in her, I mean, unbelievable. I mm-hmm. mean, her voice is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, the miseducation of Lauren Hill nearly got into my little list, but but I thought the is covered it. You got people like Wycliffe who he, that's a really powerful lineup, right? Yeah. Um, that's quite that. That's a lot of talent and not much space.
0: Yeah, exactly that. And uh, we actually saw Lauren Hill last year on uh, the Pyramid Stage at Glastonbury, nice. and. So, and that was just the miseducation and, you know, it couldn't have been a, a better experience. And, you know, believe it or not, I, I went with my dad to Glastonbury last year. Um, and he, because for him, he was he missed out the first time, 1999, miseducation. So he'd waited 20 years to be able to get to that gig. And so, yeah, that was wonderful. Um, yeah, it's
1: great that they're still they're still going there. I mean, it just shows you how timeless it is. Yeah. Um, real talent though.
0: Yeah. No, you also. And,
1: and then we were sort of, um, you know, massive attack was very big in our lives. I think that uh, massive attack is always popping up somewhere or other in my life. Um, and then a lot of it actually came through, you know, just watching the, at the time, I suppose, and it's not so much now, but watching the directors. You know, when, when you've only got like TV, you've got AV, really. As a, as a channel at that point in time, a lot of weight went on to who, who are you going to be directing with?
0: Yeah.
1: So a lot of the buzz in the creative department was about directors. So we would spend a lot of time just watching reels and looking at people like Jonathan Glazer and Spike Jones. And yeah. uh, they were, I mean, they weren't at the beginning of their career, but they were certainly earlier on. And they were working with people like uh, Radiohead and um, obviously the Beastie Boys. So a lot of the music came through the sort of music videos of the day. So, you know, people like, um, you know, Spike Jones and Sabotage is a brilliant music video and a brilliant track. And, you know, things like Ill Communication as an album was just so good at that point in time. Yeah. And it seemed to have embedded itself in a culture that was around. Do you know what I mean? It just felt very relevant. Yeah. Um, on the other end, Radiohead. You know, Jonathan Glazer was shooting a really, really cool films for Radiohead. There's music promo, which I think is a, an amazing art form still. Although, there's, you know, sadly, there's no money in it anymore.
0: Why music videos? Um,
1: yeah, it just feels like it's, it's just kind of you, it's, you've either got millions of pounds on nothing. Yes. It's a really hard place to be.
0: Why do you think that's changed?
1: I don't know. It just feels like, um, I suppose for me, well, I, I might get, Hold up on this, because I'm not entirely sure of my onions, but I suppose when I was looking at music videos, things like MTV and you know, music stations were really big and so forth you would need a good film to prime your track. Yeah. But nowadays, it doesn't seem like it's as important in this grand scheme of stuff. Well.
0: It's funny, may, um, yeah. yeah. I'll let you finish your thought.
1: I of mine set a thing up called Bug. Have you, have you been to Bug? It's this brilliant thing that he did with the BFI on the South Bank, which is um, with Adam Buxton. It's, it's, a, it's like an homage to the music video, and it would happen every quarter. Mm-hmm. And it was really, they would just take a subject matter in terms of music video. Or they would just have like music videos from the last quarter, and um, they, would, um, they would just have big screen showings with Adam Buxton narrating. Absolutely brilliant. But I don't know, I just, I just, I don't see them as much as I used to see them, I guess. But maybe no. that's because...
0: Well, perhaps. I, w- I also think it's to do with the difficulty in monetizing uh, online video content that's mm. freely accessible. And, you know, obviously then it was MTV, TV station, and all the licensing that goes with that, and all the PRS that goes with that, crucially for the musicians, uh, or the people producing it. And then, you know, now, uh, you you know, YouTube, famously, it's like, like you said, there's either everything or nothing in terms of the money you can eke out of it. You know, there are YouTubers that my girlfriend watches who have, you know, unbelievable incomes from their content because they're doing, you know, a million views of their every day of their stuff. Um, But music-wise, yeah, it's like that's a rare uh, category and, you know, you're in the top 1% 1% of the top 1% to be able to monetize your YouTube content. So I wonder if it's to do with the fact that we're still breaking into that, you know, we're still probably in the early days of of the internet and how we, or, you know, transition from traditional over to online and, and you know, being able to generate money out of it.
1: Yeah. I think for, if I was a young director breaking into the industry, that's where I'd want to really try and express myself. Yeah. I think, you know, the music video was also a really... And actually, you do see a lot of music videos on young directors' reels, but for some reason, you just don't get to see them. But maybe that's, you know, like you say, it's the YouTube funnel. Yeah. Um,
0: Did you see the um, video for uh, VossiBot by Stormzy? Yeah. That was yeah. easily one of the most visually, you know, attractive things I've seen for a long time. Everyone said that's the video of the year.
1: Yeah. The other one I like was This Is America.
0: Oh, childish Gambino. Um,
1: yeah. And I just thought, that's fucking brilliant.
0: But that's another one, wasn't it? That looked like it had a $10 million budget or something, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a really, that was a really sophisticated piece of filmmaking, that Yeah. in terms of storytelling, I thought it was absolutely genius.
0: Yeah. Um, what about, so, you know, there's music and there's uh, in music in, in the industry. And I was wondering, you know, what uh, you've been able to work on in your career where you've had a particularly, uh, I don't know, memorable experience with music? Is that the right way? Uh,
1: the one thing I think about music is, is um, it, I always think it feels like a bit of an afterthought. You know what I mean? It's just often people make films for stuff and then think about the track. But actually, I kind of think that music and soundtrack is at least 50% of the storytelling. You know what I mean? It's like if you've seen a great piece of film with a bad track on it, you think, oh, dear, that doesn't work. Yeah. But if you see an all right piece of film with a great track on it, it's, it's like happy days, isn't it? Exactly that. And it feels like... It always feels like an afterthought. So I've always... I, I think, you know, whenever I've worked on stuff, I've always tried to put music up the front and, and just try and work it out from there. Um, the BBC, when, when I was at Rainy Kelly, the BBC was always giving us interesting projects. And because of the BBC... I don't understand the licensing, but for some reason, the BBC, you could use practically any track you wanted. Yeah. Which was pretty, ma- apart from the Beatles, I seem to remember.
0: I imagine that's the envy of all creatives.
1: Oh, the music. I mean, you could just get, I mean, and, and people just go, why don't you put that on? You go, yeah, all right, then we'll do that. Um, whereas you'd be spending millions in there. Um, but the BBC gave us great stuff. I mean, there was stuff we were doing... Um, We were doing these seasons for them we did these sort of mad history seasons one was the medieval season and the other one was the edwardian season and it was just fun putting really interesting tracks on those so we did uh you know misty's big adventure that lovely song we stuck that on edwardian film footage and it was really fun it was just a really nice contrast against what you're seeing but we did this thing with the medieval period, which was when you dug into it, it was a, quite a mad period in British history. Because, uh, I mean, you've, I mean, I didn't know this, so we, we were told this by this channel, uh, channel director at the BBC, who's obviously done history at Cambridge or something, because they were just all over it. Yeah. But we learned about the medieval period and they were, uh, they had this thing called the bestiary, which was they believed in all these different animals like dog-headed people would roam around Uh, at the same time they had sort of mathematical architectural know-how to build the cathedrals that are extraordinary if you go and look at them they're like they're mad they're so complicated and beautiful so on the one hand they had all this knowledge and on the other hand they believed there were goblins running around in the basement it was quite a sort of nutty you know out there sort of thing yeah And and the creative idea became this sort of mind trip this sort of acid trip and um, I'm pointing to Jimmy behind me but <laughs> we decided to do a, um, a medieval reworking of um, Purple Haze and we did it on authentic, we got this, these uh, medieval, medieval musicians, we got these musicians who specialise in the medieval instruments to come together and, and um, play this track. It's all authentic, it's all, it's all authentic. And it's just, and the whole the whole idea was like take a trip in the medieval mind, but it it just it was it just really worked. That take and a actually, trip, that's yeah, that's great. Take a trip, take a trip in the medieval mind, and uh, it's a really nice piece of music. And then we were doing this. Um, my creative partner had this brilliant idea, which was to do an uh, you know later with Jules Holland. Yeah. The idea was to try and do a, and, the, and with the BBC, you could just go, why don't we do something like this? We wanted to do an earlier with Jules Holland, which is like. Taking musical instruments from previous eras and using it to recreate modern-day tracks. Yeah, and you know, you would talk to the BBC about stuff like that. No go, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. And you'd sort of get a certain certain way down the line, and then we just, oh, no, we're not going to do it. <laughs> uh, and then we did a thing for the Olympics when in 2012, and um, I was working with uh, it was me and my partner and uh, a team called Paul and Ted. And the idea there was to sort of create one of those sort of big sort of anthemic tracks that seem to go with every big olympic bbc thing the bbc ever did and so we commissioned elbow for an original piece of music which was amazing um and the bbc still use it actually um but that was really interesting seeing them work
0: yeah what was your working relationship with elbow like
1: uh they were really collaborative they were really good they um they wrote this song called First Steps and it was, they had these lyrics that were just, they were so beautiful, but they didn't want to put the lyric on the final track because they felt it would then become an elbow track. Not yes. A, do you know what I mean? It me, would be I more mean, like
0: a sync project than a soundtrack at
1: that point. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So, so they um, they didn't, but it was it was absolutely, I mean, just watching them work. There's a really nice making of film actually. Um, because it was all recorded at um, Abbey Road, and they had the BBC. Because then you just go, "Well, the BBC would go, Well, do you want the do you want the BBC orchestra then?'"
0: And <laughs> be like, uh, "Yeah, all right,
1: <laughs> all right, yeah." So we'll do that. So, and then the next thing you know, there's like a full orchestra at Abbey Road with Elbow, and and you know that's God, that's brilliant, and then that's the BBC. I mean, that was just like you could almost do anything.
0: It's funny I've, that I had an almost identical conversation. Um, With James Cross, who's actually at BBC Creative, now they have an in-house team. and um, Yeah, he said the same thing. We're doing our, you know, when they did our, when they did the World Cup project two years ago, and you have the uh, ability to just go down to Abbey Road for the session, um, where ordinarily, you know, musically, we'd all be working in the box here. Um, And so it sounds like, you know, it does sound like there are benefits to working with the BBC, particularly with, you know, like you said, what they can get hold of. Um, but on the um, on the elbow point, uh, I've always, or not always, I've often felt like uh, elbow are quite um, underrated. And, um, mm. you know, they do, it's not many people, everyone knows One Day Like This. And, you know, a few people know... Uh, you know, New York Morning, for example. But yeah, I do think that, you know, the lyrical sophistication and, and them as producers uh, are going to be probably, you know, quite highly regarded critically as time goes by.
1: Oh yeah, I think they're, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. Didn't it take them quite a long time to win a Mercury Prize?
0: Yeah, I think they were all like 36, 37, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's. but then maybe those are the, like you say, that they're, they're the bands that become timeless because of what they do and yeah. the craft of that i mean they they are amazing artists in in the in the broadest sense yeah and there's uh, cuz that
0: you know i caught co- when i caught co- as i caught myself saying that uh, oh yeah they were 36 37 as if that was old but for some reason uh for bands it, it, you know music recording artists it is seen as past it or like to be breaking in and I don't know, I'm literally, I've never, I hadn't thought to ask this question, but do you have any inkling, have you ever thought about why that might be? Why there's something about, you know, pop music, let's call it, that seems wedded to youth and, you know, so you've got a very short shelf
1: life in terms of age? I blimey, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> obviously, there's a, there's a marketing thing in there, isn't there? You know yeah. I mean? um, there's a big marketing thing, I think. Age in the creative industries is a funny thing. Um, I think, uh, I, I, you know, I, well, I think pop is different, isn't it? It's a very different, it's a very marketable genre. I yeah. think. Whereas, if you look at bands like, I suppose, Elbow, they're sort of musicians through and through. Someone's going to slap me for that comment, but they're, they're sort of musicians through and through in the sense that they sort of got it in, into it for the art of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas some some sides of music are clearly just quite commercial. Mm. Um, and I don't know whether that has anything to do with it, but, you know, like you say, the real talent is enduring, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I often wonder if it's something uh, arch- archetypal, you know, like so as the first people to do something are the ones who you're always going to, consciously or otherwise compare yourself to which is a way of saying that by the time the Beatles were 29 it was all over and so that may be Was that how old they were? Yeah Paul McCartney I think Paul McCartney was my age when they did Abbey Road Fuck I know it's disgusting Pardon my French No it's alright everyone does it
1: <laughs> um,
0: release it what's and all God that's shocking isn't it? It's frightening absolutely frightening yeah it's 60, 1963 to 1969 to do all that,
1: yeah. I mean, blimey, that's yeah. I haven't actually really. You just think they sort of, sort of went on for a long time, but
0: you think of him as timeless as well, and people quote yeah, John
1: Lennon as if yeah. they're
0: looking up to an elder. But he died at forty. He was twenty-six when he said a lot of the things that people quote him for. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Barely out of university mm. in our modern age.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, and they, they were. I mean, talk about impact. I mean, you know. Culturally, they just turned the world upside down, didn't
0: they? Yeah. And as um, a Northern. Well, I was more American. of a Stones man, though. No, no, I can sympathize with that. I, I do love the Stones. I, again, I saw them two years ago. Uh, Exile on Main Street, one of the top albums of all time. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I, 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 there's a good distinction between the Stones and the Beatles, I think, anyways, that Keith Richards said. Because apparently, you know, he would have a beach house just down from uh, McCartney and they'd hang out together. And they said, you know, the Beatles is a vocalist band. Everyone sings and their instruments are kind of, they're all right. You know, they're okay. Yeah, yeah. Stones are a musician's band. You've got one singer, but it's all about what's
1: going on behind the singer. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that, mm. yeah. And it's just a dirtier sound, which I sort of appealed. Um, Yeah, it's funny. I mean, my dad used to be a musician. And uh he was a very good banjo player, uh, of all things. And um this is sort of back in the um, it was before I was born, but you know, he was he was in a in a band, it was at that sort of in that sort of sixties, seventies window where it was um, you know, it was that sort of bluegrass. It was quite a big bluegrass thing game. Very yeah. I mean, he was an amazing musician actually. But he did a thing where he um they would do, they'd be the warm-up act to the stones at times on certain things wow and um yeah it just it was just a night he, he said they were doing a they were doing a they're doing a sound check at the bbc family of all places and the stones were doing theirs, and they just said they it's just so loud when they came on and just you know plugged everything in it was just like would just almost pin you to the back of the room
0: yeah i i when when we saw them at old trafford um and of course, I was in you know the cheap seats, probably about 150 pound a pop, um, right at the back, right at the top uh, at the time. And I, th- yeah, yeah. When they came on and did Jumping Jack Flash uh, as their opener, a part of me did think that somehow they've got a sound engineer who discovered like extra decibels at the top <laughs> of the scale because it was unbelievable. And but mm. that's the brand. I mean, you know, let's let's not let's not forget. The Rolling Stones, says advertising people now with those hats on, are probably the best managed brand in all of
1: music. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, and did you ever go to the Saatchi exhibition? No,
0: no, I didn't. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, how was I mean, it? you paid
1: a fortune to go in. yeah, I mean, it was like Rolling Stone World. It was amazing. But you like to say that, that that's a manicured heavily managed thing
0: yes I mean to the extent that uh, Russell Brand said in his early days he did an interview with the Stones and discovered that they have all kinds of rules on photography at the gigs because they don't want um, to show the uh, the band with an aging audience they want to make sure all photography is covering the younger cooler people at the gigs so it looks like they're you know maintaining they're still relevant exactly that yeah but but they pull it off you know, they don't. You don't. I don't think of a Rolling Stones gig and think of a lot of people of seventy or over. You know, and it's uh, no. I don't know. Have you seen the Scorsese film Shine a Light? Oh yes, brilliant, amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: I'm a big fan of music documentaries.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I. Lo- I mean, I love a good music documentary. What's the uh, number muscle, one that sticks out in your Shoal. mind? Muscle Shoal. Have you seen Muscle Shoal?
0: Yeah. Right about the um, the the studio in where is it Mississippi Tennessee somewhere like that? Yeah, it's
1: yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, it's an amazing. Oh, it's just a, the story of music. I think is um, the BBC Four always used to have a good thing on a Friday night where they would do, they would unpick an album, like they would do like Rumours or uh, whoever. Yeah, and you know, oh, Ah yeah, I love a music doc.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That Muscle Shoals one in particular. I think we watched that uh, just before just before the lockdown, and because um, I think he was about seven years old, but was that am i thinking of the right one that's where they recorded um sticky fingers stones
1: yeah it's exactly that
0: yeah and, and it
1: was it was a really unusual sound yeah uh to come out of that region in the us yeah um yeah and the backing group were a, a local guys called the swampers yeah it was a really it was, it was like one of those things when you when you look under the bonnet it's like wow It's it's just the story is amazing
0: yes and I believe it was all run by proper uh, middle middle Americans, wasn't it? Proper yeah. Johnny Cash yeah. listening denim shirt, yeah, yeah, big yeah. whiffs. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's, yeah.
0: It is great stuff. Um, so uh, let me see because I just I got a glimpse of the clock. Says we're about to come up on four o'clock. I just wondered if you wanted because we're going to have to jump off, although we could do this for a lot longer. If you wanted to take another yeah. swing at the there was a piece of work that you were referring to earlier, wasn't there?
1: Yeah, I think it's womb stories. Is this? if you haven't seen it, it's like this really beautifully animated Intersplice with real life story of, um, it's quite sort of taboo busting. Uh, I mean, it's really taboo busting. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And sort of bringing into the open, uh, the relationship women have with their wombs and, 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 and all entails, um, and the emotional impact and the physical impact. And it's, it's really about sort of, um, Sort of bringing that out into the light and sort of celebrating it and 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 sort of making it a subject that isn't taboo and something that can be spoken about. But it's done in in a way that tells you the impact of something like a womb has on the individual. You know, so obviously from the pleasure and the pain, but also the emotional turmoil. You know, if you lose a child, you know, it's it's really powerful. It's amazing. It's um, I'm not doing it justice, uh, but it but it's 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 a really powerful. I think it's culture busting in that sense, but it's extremely well done. It's so beautiful.
0: We'll definitely make um, sure. Um,
1: yeah, it's very visceral. I say beautiful, but it's actually it's beautifully done, but it is actually um, very challenging and very emotional.
0: Like it's adm- admirable for the amount of the, the profundity of the effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think as a as a you know as a as a brand, I think the work they've been doing over the last few years has been amazing. But you know, the way they approach culture and sort of talking about, you know, certain things that would never be talked about, you know, I think they started with um, blood normal, and we're talking about period and, and stuff like that, which I think is amazing and important. Um, and I think this is a continuation of that. But I think the the way it's done is just so it's quite profound.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I just feel like it's a big thing It's you know, culturally an important thing. Yeah, to be talking about and addressing. And they've done it in a way that's really honest and really, uh, emotion, emotional, and quite visceral. I think
0: we'll make sure we get a, um, a look at it while you're describing it. Yeah,
1: check it out. I mean, I think it's. I I think it's a big piece of work. That cool.
0: Well, that's a, it's a good endorsement. Um, I'll send this straight to the uh, creatives and say that <laughs> Jules has given you an interview.
1: I and... just hope I've. I, I just hope I've done. You know, I hope I've just done it justice. That's all.
0: Cool. So, oh yeah, uh, one uh, one last thing in this keep doing one last thing and I will. Um, what's going on Ogilvy-wise at the moment? What's next year looking like? Is Christmas all done? Is it deadline time? Is it mad? What's going on?
1: Uh, uh, Christmas is nearly done. We just got one more piece of uh, finishing to do on some stuff we've got for Vodafone. We've just released a, a really nice thing for Boots, uh, actually with a really uh, wonderful young talent called Rachel Chinneriri, where we've re-recorded a Burt Bacharach song uh what the world needs now for boots and their pledge to end hygiene and poverty which is a really big issue and and getting worse because of the you know culture cultural situation um so that's really exciting uh uh it's all built on this idea of prescribed kindness which i think is really has been a powerful idea that we've been running since the beginning of lockdown but and then next year, yeah, I'm excited for next year. I think um, we've got lots of things bubbling away already. We've got some really nice projects lining up. Uh, we've, we're really busy. We've got lots going on. And uh, we've just sent out our um, recruitment work for the pipe. So hopefully we'll have a lot of new, fresh and different young faces in the front door in January.
0: Great, yeah. Well, um, I, th- I think it's, uh, it seems sarcastic to say let's hope next year is better than this one. But... Um... <laughs> But I suppose one thing is, hopefully, we'll be seeing you as you were uh, in sea uh, containers. You know, I know that Ogilvy have said, you know, three days in, two days off is looking like yeah. what we're going to try. So
1: I hope, we, I hope we can all get back to a good balance. I think what we've learned is it doesn't all need to be in the office, yeah. And um, we can all work in the way it works. But um, hopefully, there's there's more balance than right now, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, well, hey, thanks for um, spending uh, an hour with us. It's uh, a pleasure, it's
1: gone really quick, it's been really nice to talk to you.